Before we jump into today's episode, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, Jane, a clinic management software and EMR. Whether you're just starting to do your research or you've been contemplating switching your software for a while now, the Jane team understands that the process can feel intimidating. That's why their goal is to provide you with all the onboarding resources you need to make the switch as soon as possible. Jane offers a personalized call to set up your account, a free data import, and a variety of online resources to get you up and running quickly. And if you ever need a helping hand along the way, you'll have access to unlimited phone, email, and chat support included in your Jane subscription. If you're interested in learning more, book a one-on-one demo at jane.app switch. And if you decide to make the switch, don't forget to use the code HEAL1MO, that's HEAL1MO, at sign up to receive a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Welcome to Interdisciplinary. I'm Cal Cates, one of the hosts. Our Canadian host, Kathy, will be joining us shortly. But, you know, in Canada, they do things a little more mindfully, more slowly. So she'll be here soon. Um, we are uh, Heal Well, and this is our podcast about people who take care of people and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. We love science, we love meaningful dissent, and we love to support our fellow humans in making our world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. Thanks for joining us for another rousing conversation with a smart, compassionate human who's going to make you deeply uncomfortable in all the best ways. Um, We are continuing our contest here in season four. If you write a review for us and we read it on the air, you will win one of a variety of very exciting prizes, either 30 minutes of unfettered, unstructured conversation with uh, Cal Cates and Kathy Ryan, or a, an interdisciplinary mug or a t-shirt, or you can have a chat with Rebecca Sturgeon and Janet Penny, authors of uh, Oncology Massage, uh, an interdisciplinary approach. No, an integrative approach. Uh, it'll be awesome. And they'll talk with you and your staff if you work in a clinic or other such setting. So uh, we've got a lot going on. We're super excited that our Just Care uh, Social Justice and Healthcare Conference is coming up in October. And we want to make sure to thank our sponsors. Uh, Care First has jumped on board with us to support that. The Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals, our pals at ABMP, Books of Discovery, and the Haney Conference on Compassionate Care. So get your butt in there and uh, learn some stuff. And as our guests said a few weeks ago, don't think it's not about you. It's about you. So get in there. If you're a massage therapist or a student of any kind, you can attend this two-day virtual conference for $74.99. If you're another kind of healthcare provider, it's $149.99, and you get eight CEs. And you have access to all of the conference recordings for up to a year, as well as a 12-month membership in the Healwell Interdisciplinary Community, where we are causing a lot of trouble in the best possible ways. So get in there, check it out. The link will be in the show notes. And uh, without further ado, I am ready to share with you all today's pun. I hope you're ready. Uh, We were actually warming up with some puns with our guest earlier today, and uh, it might take a few minutes for us to compose ourselves because uh, we've got some top quality pun happening here today. What would we get if we threw all of the books in the ocean? A tidal wave. (laughs) That's right. You're welcome. (laughs) So... 
Uh, it's time for me to introduce, and actually just to open the gate for our guest to introduce herself. I'm so excited to uh, connect you guys with Sirius Bonner, who in addition to sharing her beautiful self with us today, will also be one of our keynote presenters at the Just Care Conference. So after you completely fall in love with everything she says today, you can come to the conference and hear even more. So Sirius, welcome to Interdisciplinary. Thanks for being with us. Wow, Cal, thank you for that introduction. That's so kind. Um, I'm very excited to be on the podcast with you all today. Um, uh, I'm serious. I uh, work at Planned Parenthood Columbia Willamette as the Vice President for Equity and Inclusion. Um, I have been with the organization for about six years now, and um, it has been a life-changing experience there. Uh, I've learned a lot. Um, I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm a nerd. Um, I am yes. a, a black nerd, a blurred, in fact, um, I'm an activist, <laughs> I'm a mom, I'm a knitter, I'm a makeup enthusiast. I've recently got into crystals. That is my new, um, COVID hobby. Um, yeah, that, that's me. That's awesome. I've never heard anyone call themselves a blurred. We definitely have some blurs in the community, so I'm so glad that we can yes. add another one to our family. Well, welcome, friends. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, I mean, there are so many questions. I, I guess I, before I get into my questions, I'm interested in, I think one of the things for me that's so exciting about what you do and the way you do it is um, is your intersectional approach and that... Um, so much of what you talk about and that you're going to be sharing with us at the conference is about adding fatness to our intersectional lens. And we have definitely addressed weight bias and weight stigma and the various things that go into that in different episodes on the show. But um, to take us, tell us, tell us the things. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, I think, a, a really, really important piece of where we are right now, sort of with the movement writ large and understanding intersectional oppression. Um, you know, we, we, we really started to understand race. We started to understand gender and sexuality. We're digging into issues around class. Um, and there continues to be this, this place where we just aren't really looking. We're, we're not really doing a lot of work. And that tends to be around body size. Um, and there's some adjacent things around that, uh, like, uh, like looksism and, and things like that. But there's certainly um, this piece, especially when we start talking about um, the medical industrial complex and uh, the, the sort of the health industry, um, around fatness and our inability to connect fatness with any sort of humanity. We strip fat people of their humanity. Um, we treat them like they are um, the bane of our society, that uh, they are the cause and continuation of COVID, for example. Uh, that's been an interesting conversation lately. Uh, yeah. they, um that uh, they're, you know, it's still okay to make fat jokes. Um, it's uh, definitely, we see a lot of that in the media um, and that's a really difficult thing. Uh, fashion still be, tends to be a place where fat people are left out. Uh, travel is a place where fat people have difficulty and we're talking planes uh, and we're talking, you know, public transportation on the bus every day. Uh, so yeah. that's, you know, a place there just, there's, there's no place where fat people are allowed to be comfortable because of the simple fact that the world is not built for fat people. 
Right. Right. Because we continue to believe fat people are an aberration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, and I think this point about dehumanization is really key, obviously, because I mean, it, certainly every time we talk about a historically excluded population, that really is like, there's just this tiny little category of people who fit human. Mm-hmm. And it's so automatic that we don't even notice that, oh yeah, like I actually, this person hasn't qualified in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about, I think, I think many people who are sort of just coming to the movement, intersectionality is a confusing concept. And, and, and maybe it is because it's like, Everywhere you turn, there's another overlapping layer of, you know, it's like, oh, I can't escape. And it's like, no, that's right. That means you're getting it. Yes, yes, yes. So how does that show up? I mean, I I wonder about, you know, so your role, um, your professional role at Planned Parenthood is diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so we have a colleague, and we've mentioned this multiple times on the show before, who talks about um, really having her buttons pushed by the idea of adding black people and stirring and that like diversity is that, that you sort of look for people who look different and you throw them in and you say, good luck. But if you could stay within these white norms, that would be excellent. Mm-hmm. And um, how, as a, I mean, I, I think about you as a, as a blurred in Portland, Oregon, and like are how many people of color do you actually work with? How do you even begin the process of, because I think about all the things with reproductive Mm -hmm. rights, sex and sexuality that go into Planned Parenthood and Mm -hmm. like, where do you begin? Oh, you, you have just said a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not really sure which part to address first. (laughs) Oh boy. We'll just pull it apart. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, boy, um, where to begin? Let's, so for me, um, Portland is an incredibly white community, um, an incredibly white place. Uh, Things have changed with the last sort of census numbers, but but it wasn't that long ago that um, Portland, Oregon was the whitest metropolitan area in the country and that Oregon was one of the whitest states. Um, Again, things have changed a little bit, but that's that's was that's a recent history. Um, yeah. And it and it goes so much deeper than that, right? Uh, Portland is, um, or Oregon um, as a state, began with the idea of not including Black people, um, not and and not including slavery, and not because um, the people of Oregon didn't believe in slavery, but because they hated Black people so much they just didn't even want slaves here. Yeah. So that's how deep in the ground it is here in this yeah. place. Yeah. Um, but there, there is a historical black community here, um, even even from the early days of Oregon, um, but that has sort of built over the years. A big bump came during the um, the World War II era when we were there was some shipbuilding. Um, so I don't want to deny that there's always been black people here, um, but even as new black people come to this community, trying to find each other, trying to find a place, trying to get connected and understand where this place is is not easy yeah <laughs> um, and it and it, it it is that sort of like like throwing black people in stir or you know we like to talk about pepper and the grits or raisins in the oatmeal <laughs> like it's just chips, <laughs> chips in the in the mic in the chocolate chip cookies like you know you just yeah. throw a few in and just see what happens and that's 
uh, that's a, a problem in its own self. And I, and I think that's the challenge with um, uh, DEI or, or diversity in particular and diversity initiatives in particular, because that's where it stops. And that can't be where it stops because that's all you get. And without the inclusion of equity and, um, and inclusion, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whoops, <laughs> without those- There it is again. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, without those two pieces, then it, it really does become, um, uh, I like to call it the revolving door because what, you, what will happen is you will bring in some people of color to, this, to an organization, to an institution, whatever it is, they will look around and realize, oh, this is not the thing, and they will leave, and you'll bring in some more, and, and the cycle continues. And so without yes. some deep uh, commitment to changing the culture so that it is more welcoming and inclusive, um, and without uh, a real investment in looking at policy and procedure uh, to make sure that the organization is equitable, um, there's, there's almost no reason to do any kind of diversity work because it will be false and hollow and, and, and fleeting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you got to Planned Parenthood and Willamette, did they, did they know that? Or did you have to be like, so here's what I'm not going to do. And <laughs> like, this is not going to change overnight. We didn't get here in a month. We're not going to get out of this in a month. Like y'all sit down because it's not going to be what you thought. Or were they aware that they were like culture change was what was necessary? Oh, it was it was a little bit of a long road. Um, I think that there are some um, in the leadership who thought that that it, we were just going to hire some more people and it was going to be good. Um, however, we had um, a board. There was some board interest in this. And I think from the board's perspective, they knew that it was going to be deeper and different. And yeah. with their support, we were able to actually do some of this different level of work. Um, and I, I think, you know, for the folks who are uh, engaging with us from the nonprofit industry, having that board support is really critical. And so if there's any yeah. way that you can connect with the board or get them on, get them on your side or get them invested in making change, that's a critical piece of, of making organizational change. Yeah. And were you, so are you inward facing, outward facing both? Like, are you looking at programs in the community and being yeah. inclusive and also inside? Okay. It's, it is, it is both. I would say that I've directed my time at this point, mostly internal because um, I believe very strongly that in order for us to show up in our communities, to show up for folks of color and low income folks and all the other folks who are marginalized, for us to show up with any level of credibility, we have to have our stuff together in-house. And yeah. so that's that's been um, my focus is really trying to ensure that we are doing what we say we're doing. We are walking the talk. Um, and there, it's not like you can't show up in the community. So, of course, that continues. But right. uh, really trying to make sure that our house is in order um, as we as we always engage with the external community. Yeah. And is it is it kind of like chapters in terms of like your organization, your Planned Parenthood and Willamette might be amazing, but then like we go to one in Syracuse and they're a total mess. Or is it kind of coming down from the big top? Uh, but both and. Uh, and the okay. Syracuse affiliate is awesome, by the way. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just take that name out of nowhere, everybody. 
but yes, it's um, it's an affiliate model. So we do have sort of a national office that um, uh, is really involved in like, especially the political side of the work and those sorts of things. But the um, individual affiliates that are providing healthcare, there's about, uh, oh gosh, 40, 45 of them throughout the United States right now. Um, and uh, so it's not, it's not one for every state. And there are some that cover multiple states. So it's a little bit of a hodgepodge. Um, but each yeah. one, you know, each one has their own area and they're their own organization in a lot of ways. Yeah. Okay. And, and so that's how why do you... sometimes if you go to one Planned Parenthood in one state and go to another Planned Parenthood in another state, they don't have your same medical records. So, but we're working on that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a heavy lift for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Now, so, so many, I feel like, of the, the DEI efforts, and I know even the words within that are changing, like moving from inclusion to belonging and, and various things mm-hmm. to kind of talk about. What, you know, inclusion is still exclusionary as a word. And, but I, I feel like so many organizations, when they initiate something around DEI, they're thinking race. And I'm interested in what your process has been like in terms of saying, like, no, this actually includes disability and fatness and sexuality and all of these other pieces and and what kind of what kind of pushback you get does it help the light go off for people how do you navigate that and kind of including all of the marginalized because many more of us are marginalized than not so yeah yeah. well you know um so (laughs) i think interestingly we take a, a a slightly different tactic we talk about being race first or race forward Okay. Um, and, and really understanding some of this work and, um, not, and, and being really clear, it's not to the exclusion of any other issue or any other marginalized group. It's just an understanding that a, a, a couple of different, a couple of different streams coming together. One, um, the dynamics around race in the United States context are, um, incredibly intense and incredibly deep. Um, it is something that we as a country are not very good at dealing with. Um, it is the thing that we want to talk about least, <laughs> um, and it is sort of our, our deepest shameful history. And in that way, it makes a lot of sense to confront it first and hardest. Um, yeah. We also know that uh, if we start to deal with one issue, we start to see changes in other issues as people start to make those intersectional connections. So we know that even by focusing, we're still not going to lose the work in the other areas. Um, And we also know, um, and especially like a place like the Pacific Northwest, there are other issues we could focus on. We we certainly could sort of really lean into conversations around um, gender and sexuality, but that's something that we're kind of good at. Not perfect, not great. (laughs) A lot of work to do there. (laughs) But rather right. than going from good to great, wouldn't it be more impactful to go somewhere deeper where we have more work to do? We'll be right back. Do you want to change the world? So do we. Join Healwell this September in Arlington, Virginia, when we host the event to remember. There will be classes and conversations. There will be old friends and new ones. And yes, there will be dancing. Come to Healwell Homecoming and let's keep this ball rolling. Yeah, um, from a bit to not sucky. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think that's, that's a good move. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's, 
that's even even talking about it from that perspective that can sometimes be a challenge because um there are definitely people who say well what about my issue or what about my thing and it's like yes you're a part of this too and let's have a conversation about that but also can we acknowledge that there's some issues around race that we have to deal with because the risk is that we focus on some of these other things and lose that thread in the conversation and and Again, these are intersectional issues and they're often intertwined. To talk about those other issues without talking about what it means from the, the racialized perspective, we lose a lot of the richness of the story. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So when you, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the the power of anti-Blackness and, and how that's a unique thing and but I, I feel, and this is where you can be like, wow, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'll look forward to that. Um, that the power of anti-fatness feels similarly intractable and, and sort of like a thing people can't slash don't want to see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah, how do you, what, what, how, what have you found that it even makes a dent in like people's willingness to say, oh yeah, that's a thing that needs fixing. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. Um... Huh. <laughs> well, um, you know, in the in the trainings that I do and the conversations that I have, um, one of the things I talk about is how uh, deeply embedded our biases around fatness are into our culture. Um, again, uh, the blurred here, <laughs> the culture blurred. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah. um, but I, I, I like to show this sort of montage of cartoon villains. Right, the the ways in which we are ex as children exposed to the idea that fat people are evil, um, and yeah. not just evil, but also like lazy and mean, and they're picking on the characters that we love, and it's set up that way intentionally uh, to be able to start showing people that I think they like sometimes these these things start to click in their head around like oh like. I didn't know it was that deep. I didn't realize, you know, that Disney really has it in for fat people. <laughs> Not <laughs> Which is Disney. So funny to me because um, Disney theme parks. Oh, Disney is a business above all, and they know that if they yeah. they're all about accommodation. They have done things to accommodate fat body people in the Disney theme parks that are unthinkable in most other realms. And they're one of the few really? places. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so it's, it's just fascinating to me how on the one hand they know like there's, there's money to be made here. So let's ensure we get that. And also yeah. let's live up to our cultural norms as we produce these uh, really important messages for children, <laughs> essentially. Right. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> it's amazing yeah. how that works. It will, and it is amazing. And I mean, we, you know, it, we can laugh about it because that way we don't have to punch anybody or cry. But like, mm -hmm. I mean, that is such an interesting um, cognitive dissonance that, mm -hmm. like, you know, they think they're showing up to this problem, not knowing that they're perpetuating it, or at least not being willing to fully see that we're the change. Oh. And not that you don't want to accommodate actual people, but you could make even more change by being more thoughtful about your characters and how they present. But, but Cal, that's the thing. They're not showing up for this issue. They could care less. Right. This is capitalism. 
right? Capitalism will out always. This is about making money. This is about knowing that, you know, unlike the fashion industry, they're highly aware of the demographic shifts around size in our communities, and especially in the United States context. And they're looking at that and saying, ooh, uh, we need to be able to accommodate these larger folks who are coming into our parks, whether it's slightly changing the rides, being able to provide scooters for people, being able to provide places where people can rest easily, um, all those sorts of things they're like really on top of. But it's it's a money-making thing for them. They could care less about uh, justice or... <laughs> <laughs> or, right. or right. Know, yes. that liberation let's, or any of that. Let's not make the mistake of picturing Disney as benevolent. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, that leads me to a, a, another question that, you know, I was talking with some colleagues recently. Um, I, I'm working on creating a committee uh, for one of the massage therapy organizations around this. And I, I said to the people who are in charge of this organization, like, so it's going to be a slow process and like, there's going to be a lot of somatic things and we're going to like, it's going to be real different than maybe what you might be thinking. And a couple of the people who had volunteered and said that they are interested in participating, we're having a great conversation. They're like, yeah, all that sounds good. And then dropped in. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about kindness. And I was like, oh, we were so close. Um, and I'm, I'm curious. I mean, it's not, not about kindness, but if it was just about kindness, we would have knocked this shit a long time ago. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so what, what do you do when, I mean, I, I'm guessing it's mostly nice white people who say like, well, we just have to be nicer to each other. Um, how do you counter that? Because it's so much deeper than that. You know, <clears throat> um, Bias gets in the way of kindness all the time, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly unconscious bias, but but also the more conscious kind. <laughs> yes. But um, <clears throat> there are just ways in which we are programmed to receive and understand certain things. Um, and we have some very deep coding around things like race and fatness and gender. And when those things get challenged or triggered, um, kindness is not, that's, that's not in there. That's not something we're necessarily programmed to be our right. first instinct. Um, yeah. and so, you know, I, I think that that's, that's a, a lovely thing to say, but there's a lot of work, um, that has to go in and a lot of unprogramming that has to happen for people, um, for that to be more true than not. Um, yeah. And it really is about sort of dealing with all of that unconscious bias and, and being able to even realize that you have it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I feel like we so often we talk here at Healwell a lot about just American culture's inability to even understand nuance and that, you know, kindness and pity and niceness all like become this thing that people aren't mm-hmm. able to tease out that, mm-hmm. you know, you're being kind to this different person comes from assumptions that may have no grounding in reality. And that's yes. not kind. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So we, you know, healthcare is kind of our thing, but healthcare is also broad. Like it's not hospitals, right? Like mm-hmm. healthcare is mm-hmm. everywhere. And, there's so much talk now about sort of obesity medicine and we've been talking in our online community about um, the BMI and how it's garbage and all the other things that have led to 
specious science and dots being connected that have no business connecting. And how do you, you know, in your in your work about body positivity and moving beyond it and just conversations about de-stigmatizing fatness, how does, I mean, now there's a whole specialty of medicine to make you acceptable to society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you do with that? Oh, so um, in, in my trainings, I talk about decoupling um, health and fatness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how important that is as a, I don't know if it's a first step because even getting to that place is a, is, that's a process. But once you can get to that point where you can start to like unconnect um, what it is to be healthy from, from being fat and understand that there are um, fat people who are healthy and there are um, not fat people who are unhealthy, which it, it seems really shocking to me that people don't always understand that. Also yeah, yeah. that, um, you know, health is a construct uh, with my colleagues at Be Nourished, which uh, you, you may be uh, heard of them. Yes, they are my dear ones at Be Nourished. Yes. Um, we, you know, they often talk about if you get 100 doctors into a room and have them each define health, you would get 100 different definitions of what health is. Guaranteed. Yeah. And I think that's really important to keep in mind that there is like truly no common definition of health and what that means. Um, and I think, you know, also health ism is an ism on the, along the lines of racism and classism and sexism and all the other things. And yeah. that's something that we don't talk about either. But when we, when we think about healthism, we have to remember that as sort of a, a deeply capitalist um, uh, issue around being able to provide work for the state. And for those of us who are, are, reaching the place where they may not be able to provide work for the state, we become less valuable as human beings. Right. And that it, it yeah. all ties in. Right? This is, this is where that humanity yes. becomes a problem. Um, Absolutely. And, and if we take health as into its extreme, um, you know, as, as someone nearly did in Germany in the thirties and forties, you may have heard of that person. Um, that's when it becomes a real problem. So we have to be really careful and thoughtful about uh, how we're applying this sort of lens of quote unquote health to this issue because yeah. it, it in most cases doesn't apply. Yeah. Well, and again, a thing that we could raise right over, but that, that guy in the thirties and forties that many of us have heard of um, the reason I feel like one of the main reasons that was able to happen was because of our own deeply internalized self-loathing and mm -hmm. self-hatred. And mm -hmm. as a culture and a society, as long as that is truly what's inside us, we will be willing to marginalize others to stay on top. Yes. And I don't know how, I mean, that feels like such a hard, like in, in a couple of the bios I read of stuff that you do, you talk about the exciting thing is like that when you start to unravel one, you start to unravel it all. But at some point you just want to go have a beer and throw the ball of yarn on the ground and be like, screw it. Like, I don't, I don't even know where this is. Right. Um, and like, you know, I, I think about the, the, when we talk about obesity medicine and bariatric surgery, for instance, that, mm -hmm. you know, in the last couple of years, I've had some close friends pursue bariatric surgery and 
it, it, it feels like a place where culture is so embedded that, you know, each of them in their own way said, this isn't actually about how I look. I just want to be healthier. And, and I think that that is part of it, but it's also part of the story about what it is to be healthy and that we're not even able to know that part of why we're doing a thing is because of the pressures that culture has been placing on us our entire lives. Mm-hmm. And including the physicians who are, think they're helping. And, you know, we, we, well, a lot of us listen to this podcast called maintenance phase and they're always talking about how like, Oh, it's another example of a white person trying to be helpful and just ruining everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like mm-hmm. we want to help so badly and we want to move away from suffering so much that we wind up creating more suffering mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it does it feels like just when we get it unraveled oh just kidding here's a piece of gum and now it's all messed up again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean that the conversation around um weight loss surgery is uh, is so intense and so um painful in a lot of ways because yeah uh and that I mean it's it also it's also deeper and and grander than that right you know there's this joke that fat people tell each other about going to the doctor with a broken arm the doctor says hmm have you considered bariatric surgery (laughs) and it's a joke but it's like not because it happens (laughs) it's it's a real thing um that you know for for any any issue that you go in for it, it will, it's very likely to come up. Um, yes. And, and that's, it, you know, it's funny when it's unrelated, but um, well, it's not funny when it's unrelated, but you know, there, it, it never fails. Someone will go in for, you know, knee pain or back issues and they're told we can't operate on you. You're too fat. Would you, you need to have bariatric surgery first. So right. you can't operate on the, thing that I'm telling you is a problem, but you can right. definitely fix my fatness with operations. Right. A, a real invasive operation. Mm. Yes. Probably worse than knee surgery. Yes. A real invasive life changing um, operation that uh, it isn't, you know, regardless of, uh, e- well, even the people in my 600 pound life, it's not always a successful surgery for those folks. So, right. um, yeah, I, I, um, and at the same time, I, I have such, um, deep and profound compassion for people who make the choice to do it. Absolutely. Right. The, the, the pressure, the societal pressure, the medical pressure, I, I do have loved ones in my life, friends, colleagues, family who are at the place where they're like, you know, my my back is in such a state where I can't function anymore. Right. I might have to do this bariatric surgery to get this other problem figured out. Yeah. And I think that's a that's an awful position to put people in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I do. I feel. Uh, yeah. I look at humans and I think like, where do we start in unraveling the suffering? And and I think about as we've been talking more and more about the generational trauma and like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're we're like, we've reached critical mass of unmetabolized generational trauma. And like, none of us are able to be our best selves because we're just so wounded and we don't even know how or why or where to start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we still have to do something. 
or some of us feel compelled to do something. Yes. Um, so um, if, if you're willing to talk about, so as a black woman in Portland working in DEI, <laughs> I bet you have to teach a lot of white people about what it's like to be a black person. Um, or you find yourself with people asking you to do that. Um, and, and I would, I would guess as well as a person in a fat body that you have to sort of do that and it's traumatizing. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, I have been lucky to meet people who are in a wide array of historically excluded groups who are like people who aren't in these groups shouldn't ask us to share our pain but I am willing to be a person who does that for the benefit of, and so if you could, what can you say about sort of how inappropriate it is to just randomly ask people who are disabled, gay, some historically <laughs> to be like, tell us all about it, but also about the value of people who are willing and able to put themselves in that space and, and what you're taking on by agreeing to do that. Ooh, that's, you said a lot right there. Um, <laughs> and this is this is one of the things that gets a little complicated for me and for others who are in my line of work because essentially we're paid to do that at work. Um, and we're not in our personal lives, but there's a reason why we were called to the work that we're doing. Yeah. And, and then at work, we're in this position where we're always telling people, don't don't ask that X person about their lived experience. Talk to me. And then they're like, but you're black. And I, but you just said, and I'm like, I know what I said, but listen, I'm, I'm literally paid for you to come ask me the question. <laughs> so that you can ask your new staff member inappropriate things and get a lawsuit. Um, let's not go down that road. Come ask me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, so it's yeah, it's a little it's a little bit tricky, it's a little bit dicey, but but I think I think that sort of um even when you sweep all of that stuff to the side, it really comes down to context, authenticity, and the relationship. If all of those things are in the right place, you should be able to ask the questions. If, if those things aren't aligned, then don't do that, right? If, yes. if, if the context is not right, if the, you don't have a great relationship with that person, if you're not, you know, coming with true authenticity, then, then don't pursue it. Um, Google it instead. <laughs> because there are a lot yes. of people who are sharing um, deep, deep, deep pieces of their lives and deep pieces of their pain. Um, for mm -hmm. the benefit of others, um, yeah. and you're—that's probably you in this instance. So <laughs> you should right. go and find that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what the the Samuel L. Jackson and a handful of uh, black comedians. I think Dale Hughley um, did a thing where yes. at the end they're Google it, Google yes. it, Google yes, it. yes. <laughs> right. Yes. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that was about more. black hair. It was about black hair. Uh, and which yes. we could talk about for a long time, but I won't. <laughs> but yes, Google it. If you have questions, Google it. Also, I mean, that was that was from uh, uh, John Oliver's 
yes, yes. So weekend tonight or whatever it is. Um, that's a great place to start if you have questions about black hair that episode. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> how? Why do you do this? Like, how did you wind up at Planned Parenthood? Have you always, like, as an adult person, done this kind of work? How did you decide, like, this is how I want to spend my life? That's a great question. Um, so, um, in some ways, I started this work. Oh gosh, every, every time I think I started here, I'm like, nope, it came before that. Um, so <laughs> I guess it started in high school. That's wild to say. Um, I I had gone to I've gone to predominantly white private schools my entire life, and okay. uh, which is its own kind of experience. And um, in high school, they sent a few of us to this like diversity thing for private school kids, uh, <laughs> and that was it. It sort of opened my eyes to some things that um, uh, mm, that's not what it did. It gave me words and concepts for experiences and feelings that I had had my entire life. Yeah. And wow. that was uh, very, very uh, affirming in a lot of ways. Um, it, uh, I came out as, as bi at that conference. Uh, I was called out on some anti-Christian sentiments that I had had. Uh, I just, I learned a lot. <laughs> it was very important. Um, and, and there, that was just sort of the first in a number of uh, critical engagements with these issues. Um, many, much, a lot of it in college, really sort of being an advocate as a student. Um, early on in my professional career, doing sort of diversity recruitment. I, my background is in higher ed, actually, and not uh, healthcare. So. That's where I really cut my teeth around all of this. Um, okay. and, I, and I think the thing that really shifted for me was I attended the Social Justice Training Institute, um, which uh, I, I would encourage people to look into it. It's a really great um, um, conference learning opportunity. And that's when it really shifted around, this has to be what I do and not just a part of what I do. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that was the thing that that changed there. And so, um, yeah, since then, I've been uh, doing this sort of DI, uh, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> DIJ, Jedi, DIB, yeah, right. whatever, and all of the things. <laughs> so I remember, I remember when it was multiculturalism uh, <laughs> back in the day. So, um, yeah, so I've been in, it, sort of been doing this for about 10 years or so. Um, and I'm also at the stage where it's like, is, is this what I want to continue doing? Um, yeah, there's the, the truth about this work is that it, it just takes, it's a lot of soul work and it takes a lot of energy. Um, a good friend of mine compared it to being like a high level athlete, like a, like a football player. Like yeah. they take a, how many body and head blows can those guys take before they have to retire and for us, it's like, how many soul blows can we take before we have to sort of move on and do something else? Um, it's, it's, it's not easy work, <laughs> for sure. No. For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you just said something that um, made me think about something else that now I can't remember what that's curses. Um, oh, yeah, it's totally gone. 
been there. <laughs> so, many, so many good things that you just said. Um, oh, I was going to ask you about um, to say whatever you feel like you want to say about justice and how it fits with all of this, because I feel that so often that justice is not mentioned or incorporated in these efforts. And it, it feels like another way to guarantee a lack of sustainability in whatever efforts are made if you don't include justice. Yeah, um, I, you know, it's funny. I just had a recent uh, uh, revelation about this, that something had never occurred to me before, um, that there there's a particular reason why justice has not been included in these conversations up until now. It's, it, it it has to do with the roots of this DEI work and um, the early stages of this work the from the 60s through the 80s was really about preventing lawsuits and that sort of evolved into making a business case. And you'll notice that neither of those things have anything to do with justice. And so yeah. I think justice yeah. has been very intentionally left out of the conversation for a long time. And I don't think it was until quite a bit later when um, uh, people started to want to talk about these questions outside of, you know, a corporate setting in particular, that justice yeah. started to become more involved in the conversation. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled to see it on the table now uh, because it, yeah. it always should have been there. It was always the right thing to do. It was always about righting past wrongs and to pretend otherwise is... Um, disingenuous. I'm curious, serious, how you feel like um, the other piece of justice being left out is that I know like in America, our, our perception of justice tends to be punitive. That like justice is about, you know, you did wrong and now you'll pay. And the idea of like transformative justice is, I mean, like anathema to the American psyche. And uh -huh. this idea <laughs> right, that we would like just clean up the mess and move forward. Everyone acknowledging their role and like allowing time for pain. That's not a thing that we really like. That's not justice, at least. You know, when we, if you went just like you said with physicians, if we asked a hundred of them what health means, if we asked a hundred citizens what justice is, I find it very hard to believe that anyone would, would say anything about healing or accountability or any of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I, I mean, even. I, I and many others have said this, that uh, we don't have a justice system, we have a legal system, right? So I think that even that acknowledging that is, a, is an important part of this. Um, but yes, I, I think that we really have to redefine and reconnect with what justice is and what justice looks like, because um, it it's not punitive. It's, it is about... Um, righting wrongs and righting wrongs is often sort of taking care of those who are wronged and less about focusing on the person who did the bad thing. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's a piece of understanding sort of uh, I think where we should head. I, you know, I think about that in the context of like the me too movement and, and um, some other things like that. Like this is really about um, ensuring that folks who are experiencing harm um, are made whole, right? And focusing yeah. on their needs and what would that look like instead of, of, of punishing someone, you know, that that's not gonna help the person who was harmed in any way, most likely.
Right, right, exactly. And I mean, I think it supports the myth of closure, which, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. is a whole other, we could talk for another hour about that. Now, Canadians, Kathy, are so much more mild mannered. What do Canadians think about justice in terms of, I mean, because, you know, yeah. <laughs> see, see, there's part of the problem. <laughs> is that there's this perception or assumptions that Canadians are more mild mannered. We have the same issues as as the U.S. We really do. It, it it really is not that different here, other than we have different gun laws um, than the U.S. That might be one of the the differences that you see. Um, but as far as human behavior goes, not all that different. And I think you know one of the things that we need to get to you know, really look at is what is our def definition of wrong and what is acceptable behavior within a society or a culture, you know, because all too often we hear like boys will be boys or, you know, these things that have mm -hmm. floated over how many thousands of years, you know, talking about the Me Too movement, for example, when we don't recognize that certain language or certain behavior towards individuals is inappropriate or disrespectful or wrong, how can we ever create justice? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we and we hold up this this hierarchy of harm as well that really supports like, well, that's not that bad, you know. And yeah, how do we? If if I feel harmed, I feel harmed, and we've got to slow down. And yeah, and when harm is built into our systems, when you can just assume that you will be harmed by engaging with healthcare or engaging with the DMV or, you know, um, and I was going to ask, um, serious in terms of, um, is there, I imagine that there are similar, uh, discussion around fatness and weathering that there is around. Yeah. So you're, you're nodding. Yes. I mean, it, it is another characteristic you can't hide and that most assuredly does not make you welcome in any place that you go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> again, uh, the world is not built for fat people. And uh, as, as I move through the world on a regular basis, uh, there weird things happen to be all the time. Um, and I, by weird, I mean bad. And like negative interactions or, or, or things that I, you know, things that go sideways. And I just, I'm left wondering, okay, did that happen because I'm black or because I'm a woman, or because I'm fat, hmm. and like, or the combination, or all like the above. intersecting, or you know, all of those things, and those are just the visible things. Like there are other aspects of my identity that may be coming into play that are not right at the surface in that way, and so um, I have to think about that all the time. And and I've I have found that um, lately, if if it has something to do with anything physical, it's most likely my fatness that's coming into play, right? Whether it's, um, uh, can I fit into a seat? Um, you know, making sure like, I'm, I'm, can we, can I sit at a table instead of a booth at a restaurant, uh, traveling? I, I can't even get into the traveling conversation. I mean, I could, but, um, there's a, you know, there's a lot going on there. Um, yes. But yeah, and 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 not just that, the the ways in which people feel uh, very entitled to um, judge you around your body and speak on it openly. Yeah, that's that's wild. <laughs> I yeah, just, 
the amount of times people have just said things just you know oh you should eat a salad or you know uh i remember i was like walking up a hill and these uh guys on a little golf cart they were the grounds cart the place i was at they were they were moving up alongside me and the guy's like keep going you're gonna make it and i was like what what like what are you right what's happening here um but yeah just the the conversation around my body by other people is always fascinating to me yeah well and and i feel like this isn't you know we talked about culture and how just i I, i'm so sick of the phrase baked in but it it is like we just it's in us in ways we don't understand and so like i am sure that i've been that idiot on the golf cart to any person and been like you can do it and it's like you know we use in our trainings the weight acronym why am i talking you don't know this person just mm-hmm. shut up mm-hmm. like yes. shutting up is more intense the law <laughs> yes yes yeah yep yeah they don't need pom-poms just go about your business mm-hmm. exactly yeah well we definitely have a lot of work to do and you have brought yet another aspect of humanity that needs some repair and uh, retooling uh, to our attention. So thank you for that. And uh, I'm so glad that we're going to get to hear even more from you and and hopefully that our conference attendees will get a chance to ask you their burning questions and and you'll be able to uh, share your insight with them. Kathy, what else do we need to know? I'm sure you covered it all. (laughs) We did. We solved everything. I'm sure you did, and and I'm going to listen so that I can improve myself as a human. (laughs) (laughs) You are perfect just as you are. Um, I think my final final question um, to you, Sirius, because I I know that we all have to go about our lives because I have a lot more questions, but um, if there was, is there a thing that people do wrong in their DEI efforts that like kind of torpedoes them from the start that you would say to people like, if you just maybe didn't do this, or if you did this instead, is there a thing that you would suggest to people? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, actually, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> ig- ignore the D, focus on the E and the I, right? And the J and the B. Yeah. Um, yeah I especially for organizations that are are mostly white or predominantly white um the diversity is probably the last piece that you should be focused on don't ignore it they all have to be working in tandem all of these pieces have to be working together but really really focus on changing your culture so that it is more welcoming um and and ensuring that there is equity um, for people as they enter the organization, because if they don't find those things there, they will leave. So, yeah, yeah. The, the, the D is, is be... ideally a byproduct of successful mm-hmm. EI. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for um, for putting yourself in the in the trenches uh, for however long you decide to keep doing that, and uh, for just just being alive and making it look fun and. Um, for spending some time with us today. We look forward to having you uh, with us for the conference, Just Care, Social Justice and Healthcare. Everybody get there, sign up, 
Take advantage of your discount if you're a massage therapist or a student of any kind. Healthcare providers of lots of different disciplines get eight CEs, and anybody who joins and comes to the conference gets a 12-month membership in our online interdisciplinary community. So check out the link and whatnot in the show notes, and uh, go and like us and share us and tell all your friends and your pets and your family why you listen to Interdisciplinary and tell them they should do the same. And until next time, uh, take care of yourselves and each other. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy interdisciplinary, you should check out Healwell's new show, The Rub, a podcast about massage therapy. You can click the link in the show notes or find The Rub wherever you listen to podcasts. See you there.